Thank you, Lord, for being able to sing together. Just worship you, Lord. Just say all of those things we sang are true, Lord. We need you. All the truth of who you are, Father. And the truth of who you are, Jesus. Holy Spirit, stand up and believe it, Lord God. Just thank you for it. Just being able to sing together again, Lord. It's just um, something powerful. And just bless your name. I don't know, I don't know if you guys sound on down and down. Like I've tried to make the most of the past few months, right? And I'm trying to re- remain optimistic with these other forms of worship. We'll, we'll read and that's a bit powerful. You know what I mean? We'll, we'll listen to songs and powerful. But just, as I got to just sing the words of the song this morning, there's something different about like vocalizing, I need you, Lord, I need you, than just sitting and listening to it. You know, it's something that just makes it your own and being able to speak it out or sing it out or to have brothers and sisters standing beside you and behind you and you know you're like just singing truths about who God is and I'm not alone in this thing you know I'm not, I'm not alone in believing in my hope being in Jesus and, and that stuff and so it was a gift thanks to being an empty priest it's, um, it's great to be back in that um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this morning and I'm going to speak from where we are in the Bible project which is in Deuteronomy and in Matthew and um, and uh, before I do, you know, I just I, I felt I felt this morning, and this week actually I was preparing a message. I shared with the guys just beside there that um, I felt this like expansive. We're looking at um, some stuff that the Lord spoke about, about, like to His people before they went into the Promised Land about poverty and about like land and wealth and generosity, and they're like things that permeate like the whole of life. They're huge, and it feels like okay, these these big huge principles that would ask uh, like. Affect every aspect of your life, and I'm going to try like 20 minutes, get something, get something across, and um, and it really just re-emphasised to me the need, and I just encourage it to be to be in the Word, to be people of the Word. This thing that we do, called like we, we've called the Bible Project and the chapters of it, isn't just about having some smart Bible reading plan. It isn't just about encouraging you to do that. It's like, how is your life being shaped day to day? What's the rhythms and patterns of it? Or if that's not a rhythm and pattern of your life, what are you denying yourself? Like we actually believe that, that, that the Bible is the word of God and it's spoken that when we, see, when, we, when we look and we read and we can hear the voice of God speaking directly into our lives, like are we, are we willing to live lives that let that gather just on the shelves or are we going to actively participate in what God wants for us? And I spent just a couple of days this week, I was over in Scotland helping out with an outreach and um, I was there with Thomas Carney, who some of you guys might know. And he shared his testimony where two years ago he was over in Scotland on that outreach and came to know Jesus. And, uh, and two years since, the guy's life has just transformed, like radically transformed. I get to share his testimony sometime. But not just transformed as in, you know, like peace of mind, peace of heart and stuff, but literally his life was going one direction and turned 180, turned around and went the opposite direction, like following Jesus. And one of the things he said stood out to me was like since that day two years ago, like every single morning he's got up and gone to the prayer meeting in Noel's house at 6 a.m. every morning. He's been on the Bible project thing then that started at 7 a.m. on Zoom for two years. And just the rhythm, the repetitiveness of that, being in the Word. Imagine he's like brand new Christian and he's like he's reading through like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. I'm being exalted. So last year he read through the whole of the New Testament. First year as a Christian, read the whole of the New Testament in community with other people. And you just see the fruit in his life, and you see that stuff paying off. And the question to the challenge here is just like, let's avail, let's avail of that, the gift we have in the Word of uh, joining together. And that would kind of make sermons like this a bit easier, where I feel I have to like explain the whole concept that's there in Scripture, but it's not, it's like this rhythm of we've been given the Word, the disciples, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking the bread of fellowship and prayer, and have made its 
way into their lives, into the overlapping of their lives. We want to orbit our lives around this stuff. And so I feel what I have to share is just maybe like a highlight of some of the stuff that God would want to say and speak into your life in real ways. And Lord, as, as we do it, let's pray that what needs to land this morning with land. Um, you knew this morning, Lord, you knew it before the beginning of time. You knew who we gathered here. Um, we gather under your name, Jesus, and just ask that only what you want to say will be said, Lord, and that anything else will fall away. I pray that we would give you our attention now, Lord, that we would treat these moments, this, this space in your word as holy. We wouldn't treat, Lord, your word as something disposable or just an aspect of a service or whatever. But it's your word, and so we give it like its due respect, as we would want to give you your due respect and honour, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, um, let me read. I'm going to spend a good bit of time just reading scripture this morning. Like, and what I have to say is just like a little filling in a sandwich. We're going to start with a bit of scripture, we're going to end with a bit of scripture. And like I said, we're in Deuteronomy and Matthew, um, and the bit of Deuteronomy we're in is this. Um, we're going to read it out from chapter 15. To set the scene, this is um, when the Israelites are just about to go into the promised land, right? So Moses has given them some instruction of, of, of um, the Lord has given them as to what society is going to look like under God, right? So let me read it and I'll comment on it after. So, at the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payments from their neighbors or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. This release from debt, however, applies only to your fellow Israelites, not to the foreigners living among you. There should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he's given you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing if you are careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend money to many nations, but you will never need to borrow. You will rule many nations, but they will not rule over you. But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive at the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for cancelling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with the other Israelites in need. If a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years in the seventh year, you must set that servant free. When you release a man's servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, um, and your wine press. Share with some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you are one slaves in the land of Egypt that the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this, this command. Okay? So, context, what's happening here? We have Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy literally means like the second law, or the retelling of the law, the second time that Moses is going to tell the people. And he's like, it's also Moses' farewell speech. If you guys know the story at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses like, sort of literally standing on the banks of the Jordan River. Over the other side of the river is Jericho, which is the promised land. Joshua is about to take over and lead the guys that over to take the promised land. Um, but Moses gives his last farewell speech before he goes up on a mountain and is taken up to be with the Lord. Moses, who's led them out of slavery in Egypt, who God raised up, literally took them as slaves from, from the land of Egypt. And they've wandered around the desert for 40 years, 
God's teaching them what it looks like to be his society. He's teaching them what it looks like to follow his laws. He's given them the law, the Ten Commandments. He's given them like the priesthood. He's given them all that stuff that we read in Numbers and Leviticus. And now Moses is recapping it. And it's like he's reframing. Look, before you take the land, before you step into this, I want to remind you of everything that God has done. I want to remind you of everything that he's commanded you. Because it's going to be important as you step into this, this new space. And the context of what he's doing here, where God has given these kind of commands, that, that we read, I'll leave one of them up there on the screen. The, the reason he's given this kind of stuff, it might sound a bit weird, what's he talking about? Handling the dead, why is God saying anything about that, no loans? And it's like God getting into the bonds of a society. And what he's done in the people of Israel is he's taken a people to represent them to the world. We know that context of the bigger story, he took Abraham and make him to a nation, and he, like many nations will be blessed through you. And in this part of the story, he's like forming a people the idea is that when I give you this land, people are going to look on you as a society and they're going to get to see the heart of God. They're going to get to see what it looks like to be, to be like a follower of God. They're going to get to see what the purpose for humanity was in terms of living in community with one another. He's forming a community that's going to represent him. Now, you might say that's good for them. We know the story unfolds that ultimately the real representation of God comes in Jesus you see me, you've seen the Father, and Jesus represents completely who the Father is. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into the church, and now the church are the continuation of the representation of God on earth. When people look at the church, they should be able to see in how we live, and how we interact with one another, and what we do and don't do, and how we, we engage in society and the economy, in all the aspects of our life. Not just in raising our hands and singing on a Sunday morning or gathering in a space, but in our lives day to day. What does that look like? And how, who does God look like because of that? So that's our, that's our role. And so, God is reminding these people, or not reminding them, commanding them, here's, what, here's who I am. So everything that we read here is a reflection of who God is, and it's meant to be like a reflection to the world of who he is. And so they're about to step into it. So he gives them, he gives them laws about like money and land, etc. Because remember, they're all slaves, and then when they came into the desert, they were more or less all equal in a forced kind of way, I don't know if forced is the right way, but God put these constraints on them that nobody really got ahead of anybody else. For 40 years, that's what society looked like. Never going to go to a place where there's wealth available, the land flowing with milk and honey, and there's the temptation to leverage that, to, like to, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, you know, that kind of what our world looks like right now. And in the desert, it's kind of protected them from that through, through the provision of manna. You know that story where the Israelites would wake up in the morning and there would be like this, stuff on the ground. Manna literally means that thing. That's what it is in Hebrew. It's like, that thing woke up in the morning, that thing is on the ground. And they pick it up and it tastes like, it tastes like wafers made with honey. Literally every morning in the desert, this is how they were fed. Um, they would get up and pick up stuff off the ground. And not only did the Lord provide in that way, but he was teaching them through the nature of how manna worked, about what it looks like use the resources that he gives us in a way that glorifies him and forms them as a, a community. Manna was more than just provision of food. Manna was teaching them like a principle going forward. So what would happen is that he, God made it like this miraculous food that just appeared, but he made it that it would only last one day, right? So it means, because it only lasts one day, it means that nobody can utilize it to build their mana empire. Nobody can use it as a tool with which to gain wealth and gain advantage over somebody else. You could store all you want in one day, but you can only eat what you can eat the next day. It rots and it goes away. So 
the, the, the rich aren't at an advantage, or the people with big families aren't at an advantage, right lads, we're all going to get up at four in the morning and collect all of the manna, and then we'll stockpile it, and then people will have to come and sell it, and we'll use that as a way to like, carve out like, our security. And that's what we do in the world with any resource, yeah? That's what happens with any resource. It's like, like water, food, whatever. Like people are constantly looking to, to leverage that in a way to make themselves feel more secure. But God was teaching them about provision, about daily provision. When Jesus teaches us to pray, give us to say our daily bread is a reflection of the manna principle from the desert. What does it look like to depend for God daily? And beyond that, what does it look like to disengage with an economic system that says leverage whatever you can to make yourself secure at the expense of others. That's what the world looks like, yeah? The neoliberalism in the world even extends it beyond resources to, to the personality. You would say, like, it effectively says to us, your responsibility is to leverage your gifts, to leverage your talent, to commodify who you are into something that you can, you can sell to the world. God, on the other hand, says, will you, will you trust me? Will you trust me to provide you with any bread today? And so he's teaching them this, this principle. And something else miraculous happens uh, with manna is that, like, not only was it just so, people might think it's just some naturally occurring thing in the desert or something, but then miraculously when they gathered it on a Friday, they had a Sabbath on a Saturday, and the manna would last two days. So it rotted within 24 hours, Monday to Friday, but then they would gather enough on Friday to last all the way through Saturday, and it would last for 48 hours before it rotted. God is teaching the principle of Sabbath. He's teaching the principle of, of, of rest, of recognizing where our, our provision actually comes from, of like laying down the tools of productivity for 24 hours, of trusting that there will be enough the next day to, to survive. And that's countercultural. Like that's in a world where you can't shut off from work, where you can't shut off from emails, where you have to like store up stuff like, like you might think, you know, we need more money in the bank, more job security, whatever it is. Where we don't feel we can we can shut off, we stop for a day, that what'll happen, like just the fears of that stuff. But God is reminding them to trust in him. So manna was more more than just about provision. It was about teaching them that here in my in my society, in the people who are going to represent me in the world, in the way I meant humanity to function and to flourish. It's not about the rich getting richer, it's not about leveraging what you can to make good stuff for yourself at the expense of, of the poor. And it's about trusting me, like that, that, that pattern of, of rest. And so, now they're stepping into the promised land and the manna is about to cease, right? And so that kind of forced environment that they're in, where they're kind of shoehorned into this, they had no real choice because they couldn't leverage it in that way. Now they're moving into to land where, you know, people could try and grab the best pieces of land, people could like try and like take more land if they have good years, invest in more stuff and build empires. But God all throughout Numbers, if you, if you read through it with Numbers, sometimes you need to have patience in Numbers, but it was God saying, like, so literally, this family that exists right now, this is the bit of land I'm giving them. And this family that exists, this is the bit of land that I'm giving them. And this, he's allocated, making sure that everybody has what they need. Now, when they step into the land, there's a chance that they could lose that. They have a bad crop or something, and now they lose it, or they have to get a loan, and then they have to repay it, and they're just stuck in cycles of poverty. And God is protected against that with the same kind of principles that we had in manna. Manna was six days on, one day off. Now we have like six years on and one year off. And he's saying radical stuff for this society. He says in the seventh year, cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. So we move into the promised land. 
Patrice has a parcel of land, he's farming and the, the, the crop doesn't work or something. She needs to get a land to, to move on to the next year. What he's saying is like, by the end of the sixth year, like, forgive that debt. Just let it go. Whether it's been repaid or not, let it go. Like, just, just, just let it, let it go. Like, there's like this economic reset. And it says in another place that they're actually meant to leave in the seventh year. The land follow. Just let whatever grows grow. Don't even sow it. Just let the land produce what the land is going to produce. Can you imagine the faith it would take as a farmer to say, like, I've grown for six years and like, I've got this thing going. Now I'm just going to let whatever happens happen with it. The faith. But God promised them, if you do this, that I will bless you. If you do this, I'll provide it. The manna stuff again, it's gathering it on Friday and, and it's going to last all through Saturday. But now it's in a yearly, a yearly pattern. And it's like, release from death anybody. Don't demand payment. There should be no poor among you. Huge statements. Huge. Because God was determined that the people who represented him wouldn't participate in the world's pattern of trying to get one up on one another. The pattern of trying to find security and meaning in amassing possessions and the things that you have. What God had given them was enough. And they don't, they didn't need any more. And so it went beyond that. There could be a case where you had a bad year and you just couldn't repay the debt. Like, you got along from someone, you couldn't repay it. And what you could do is offer to go and work for them, to work off the debt effectively. So that's what I think when he talks about servants there in the next slide, it's like indentured kind of servanthood. If there's any, if there's any servants there, I don't know, I might have a slide there, but I read it. Um, like anyone who's a servant you, like, like that, again, you let them go at the end of the sixth year, even whether their debt is paid or not. It's a way of making sure that what God has given to people is given and that we don't use it to... Um, to, uh, to, to get one up on, on one another. And so, God commands this stuff so that there's people not in competition with each other, not just a group of individuals looking out for themselves, but like a community, a family, loving their neighbours and loving the Lord. That those who found themselves down on their luck wouldn't be pressed further. That generational poverty will become impossible. You know, there's another, there's another part in Deuteronomy, it's not in this chapter, but where every seventh pattern of seven years, so seven, seven is 49, there's meant to be this year called the year of Jubilee. This is God commanding them, this is the way I want you to run your society. And in that pattern, all slaves were freed, whether they were like Israelites or whatever. If anyone had had to even sell their land, right? If anyone had led them in so much poverty, they had to sell their land to somebody else. At the end of 50 years, they got that land back. Because God is saying, send them in. I'm giving you this an everlasting possession for you and your families, and that it will produce enough to support you. It's just a radical way of, of forming a society. Each will be given back what God had allocated to them, and that God would bless those who gave back what He told them to give back. So there's principles all over the place in this. Even this principle of like looking after the poor is like when you when you um, See this, right? It's like be generous and lend them whatever you need. Don't be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for, for cancelling debts is at hand. What's he saying? It's like, if you know the seventh year is coming up and somebody needs a loan on year six, don't be like, I'm not going to lend you money this year. Can you hang on till January? And then you'll have another six years to repay it. Because by the end of the year now, it's going to be written off in January, yeah? So he's like, don't do that because that's, that's it. Don't look for the loopholes. In what God has said, their generosity and fine on. Don't look for the, you know, that tendency in our heart to manipulate. Well, technically, technically, I'm doing, I'm doing what's right. What's God saying to the Pharisees? You look to give ten percent of your grain and your spice, but your heart's far from me. You're like, you're looking at this like the letter of the law rather than the heart of the law. 
And then, like Genesis 3 in, in the ways that she gives it before, um, don't give grudgingly. Um, it says, give, give Eric all the stuff that you have. Don't send them away uh, empty-handed. If somebody has been like a, like sold into like redemption service or paying off the debt, when they leave, don't be like just your, your debt is gone. It says, give Eric all them your flock, your threshing floor, your wine press. He's saying, send people back home for success. What's the language for that today? Give them capital to start, to start again. But that's meant to be the heart of, um, of God's people. And it's, it's radical. It's absolutely, it's absolutely radical. And can you think of the kind of faith it would take to do that? So if somebody is poor and you have the resource to meet their need, right? If you have the resource to meet their need, it means that you have, you have extra, right? You're able, to, you're able to give. But the faith it would take to actually give away that extra to someone else, what does that, what does that involve? Like, what would cause you to hold back from that? If genuinely somebody had a need and you've got, somebody has a thousand girl on need, it's year six, right? It's going to turn to year seven next year, and that's going to be forgiven, and somebody, and you have a thousand euro in the bank, right? Like, what stops you from just giving, from just giving that? I think the things that stop us would be, like, one fear that we won't have enough tomorrow, like that, like, our identity or our security, how many of us would feel more secure if, like, our bank balance was multiplied by ten overnight? We had it there tomorrow. Now, if that's true of it, is that is that a kingdom value? Is that is that that, that value of feeling our security based on the stuff we have? Is that something that that you'll find in the Bible saying this is a good this is a good way to act? This is this is where your hope should be in what you have in the bank? Or is that a value of a of a different kingdom, the kingdom of this world? And what this is is a clash of a clash of kingdoms and the kingdom of God is ludicrous. To those on the outside until God blesses it and he sees that those who give have more than enough. Those who, those who obey have more than enough. And not only do they have more than enough, but there's no poor among them. That's the way that it's, it's meant to be. That we're meant to, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Like what way, if we were in, in hard times, how would we like to be treated? Like we're meant to, we're meant to do that. And I don't know, it's huge, it's challenging. As I, as, I read, as I read this stuff this week, I'm like, it's so counter to the way that the world, to the way that the world looks. Like, to be able to just give away generously, like, we would have to just think that, well, what, what if I need it tomorrow? You know? Like, I give out of the extra half today, but what if something goes wrong tomorrow? Well, what if you lived in a society where everyone acted that way, and if something went wrong tomorrow, somebody else is going to do the same for you that you did for them? And I know that sounds idyllic, but that's what the kingdom of God is going to look like. That's, that's, that's how there can be no, no poor amongst us. And I don't know if that pokes at your heart, because it pokes at, it pokes at mine. Jesus said you can either serve God or money. You can't, you can't serve both. And it's kind of heart revealing truth in saying that. Another way of saying that is, if you look at what you do with your money, you can tell when you serve. You look at your attitude towards money, you can tell who you really, who you really serve. When it comes down to it, are the ways in which we use or store or accumulate wealth with what God has provided for us, are they showing that we live according to the kingdom of God, or are we just participants in this, in this other kingdom? See, all around the Israelites, there have been kingdoms where where people were like like making money off the backs of the poor, where people were so who can get ahead, and everybody's just on that struggle to get ahead, get more money, get more position, gain more security, and a lot of rationalizing in good ways. You've got to gain all of this, and then that'll look after my family, and that'll, you know, and then the more you have, the more you need to protect it. I'm convinced, 
like aside from the Lord telling us free, there's either those of us who don't think we have enough and live in fear of it, of not having enough, or there's those of us who have more than enough and live in fear of losing it. But the end result of it is, is fear. God calls us to be people who live by, by a different, a different king, a, uh, people who represent God. Now, here's the tragedy of this thing, because you hold that out and it's like, like that could be incredible. People would have seen and The tragedy is that, as far as we know, this never happened. As far as we know, the Israelites never, just never did this. They got into the land and they just like, they just did what they were going to do. As far as we know, never. In fact, there's um, I saw this connection when I was reading a commentary during the week. I never, I never knew this before, but you know, there was, um, so, it's supposed to happen every six years, right? So that's a cycle of, of seven years. 490 years after the end of the promised land, the Israelites were taken into, into slavery in Babylon. And we're told that the Lord allowed that to happen because they hadn't obeyed his commands in all sorts of ways, right? And I always assumed that was the stuff around worshiping other gods or, or whatever. But 490 years later, if anyone was good at maths, how many, how many cycles of seven is that? 490 divided by seven. 70, right? So 70 by seven is 490. And we read in Second Chronicles, so Jeremiah prophesied that you're going to go into exile for 70, for 70 years. It's 490 years later of them not giving the land and Sabbath rest, not obeying it. 70 cycles have happened, and they end up in exile out of the land for 70 years. And Chronicles says this, so the message the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. Like God has established this pattern. They didn't obey it for, for 490 years, but the land was owed 70 years of rest. God takes them out of the land. It's like, you're not going to obey this. You're not going to represent I'm going to give the land its rest anyway. And takes them out and they're in exile. It's just how serious God is about it. About what he's commanded. Because what he's commanded is about the restoration of, of humanity. Now, it doesn't look like they, they achieved it, which, which, which is cool as well, because it's this micro-picture of how we know that the story unfolds, right? What happens in this kind of microcosm is really the story of the Gospel. It's the story of law's inability to actually make us right with God. It's the story of God gives all of these commands, but at the very heart of them, we just we disobey. Whatever they are, take the easiest command, I've used this example before, be patient, right? Everyone agrees it's a good command. How many of us were perfectly patient just in this last seven days? Just in the last 24 hours. So we can, like, probably not we can agree it's a good thing to do, but like, but then, like just knowing it's a good thing to do doesn't make, us, doesn't make us do it. Like that we need not just like an example in Jesus, but we need a saviour. We need somebody who will fulfill what the law was meant to do. And here's where the story gets killed. Jesus, the first thing that he does, one of the first things we're told he does is he goes to, uh, to the temple and he picks up this scroll. We know the story, one of the first things we read. And he picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it and he reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's talking about, about these years. He's talking about the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, the favor where the deaths are cancelled. Yeah? He's talking about the favor where good news to the poor. That year is good news to the poor because the poor are re-established. Jesus says crazy things. Like when he stands down to like give his manifesto of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like. Blessed are those who are poor in heart recognize their need for God. 
because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Like Jesus comes and he fulfills this law. He's like this this thing that was like pointed out like thousands of years ago, a way that we should live, it's fulfilled today. He like it's, it's almost like, like a mic drop moment. He's like, today, three times he says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. On the fulfillment of what God had uh, meant for the world. The kingdom of God is here. And you see it all over what he said and what he did and how he acted, and that he lives counterculturally to what the world would expect. This new society is here, the kingdom of God is here, and we have the choice whether we enter it by faith, whether we're going to live by it. And the kingdom of God is more than singing songs on a Sunday morning, though that's a beautiful part of it. The kingdom of God it permeates like down to what you do with what's in your pocket. It permeates what you do with the, the hours that you have allocated, it permeates what you, how, you, how you interact with your neighbours, it permeates how you talk to your friends, like what you, what you do with your time, how you pray, like, like it, has, it, it impacts every aspect of our lives. But this morning we look at justice for the poor, at loving one another, at being part of a different system than the economies of this world. And we have the choice, are we going to be in that kingdom or are we going to, um, to reject it? Like we said, the, the Israelites never, never achieved it. They never, they never fulfilled at that time that purpose that God had for them. And then something beautiful happens. Jesus comes, he says, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. He dies, he's resurrected from the dead. He sends the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up at Pentecost and preaches and some people come to know Jesus. And we see this description of him in Acts chapter 4. And it says this, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything that they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those who needed to see that the church was the fulfillment of what God had intended. In fact. This, this line, you know where, where I read back in, uh, in um, I read back in Deuteronomy and says, there shall be no poor among you, right? In the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the, the, the writer like Luke who wrote this would have written, there will be no poor among you. The Greek for that is a direct quote where it says here, there were no needy people among them. Luke's directly quoting this promise by God that we know for and showing that it was fulfilled in the church where here now there was a society where there was no needy people among them. Not just because God blessed them like in some miraculous way outside of the community that he called them to, but that people's hearts were now aligned by the Holy Spirit. People were now made alive to God. People now saw that they were they'd been like made right with God because of Jesus, and that freedom from the inside out resulted in people living out of obedience, and we see the fulfillment where there was no needy people among them, because people gave sacrificially. Jesus transforms our hearts, and he sets our hearts free from slavery to money, and he opens up our eyes to the futility and the systems and patterns of this world and the things and places our hopes in, and he sets us free to represent them as his people and he convinces us and makes us aware of the grace, the undeserved favour of God. He makes us aware that we were once slaves to sin like the Israelites were once slaves in Egypt. 
we were once slaves to money and all the ways that the world operates, like never having enough, and then Jesus like sets us free from that. The gospel is like intensely practical. It's not just some esoteric outside thing, like it, it permeates every aspect of our lives, not the, like I said, what we do with what's in our mind, how we think about it, how we interact about it, like what's your relationship with finance like with like are, are you free to be generous or are you a slave to to money? If we have the resources to meet the needs of the poor and we don't, why? Why don't we? In some way we're not living in the freedom that Jesus has for us. And I don't know, I could make a million more points. That's why I like this is expansive. Because when you look down through uh, the New Testament, do you know Jesus? Jesus has more, Jesus and the apostles have more to say about money than they do about things like faith and prayer. It's mentioned more in the New Testament around that because, I think, because they're aware that that's the thing the biggest competitor for our faith. The biggest competitor for, for like where our actual trust is. You might like use words like faith when it comes to money. But what is what is faith like? It's like the assurance of people seeing what will cause it, right? But like what we what we want our faith to be in is like something that's tangible. Like like so I feel I feel confident knowing that I have the backup of a big bank balance or a secure job that I can't lose and money coming in every week. But eventually right that can be a good thing, God blesses us with those things. But if those things come to occupy the space of God in your life, then they're bad things. Then they're, then they're evil things. If all of a sudden, like, you, you somehow step from, like, money being a blessing, and money being, like, you have then the, 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 the opportunity to give, the opportunity to be generous, to bless, and you know that people needs to walk in that, to that then money becomes a pressure. Money becomes, like, something that, that, that we need to hold on to. It becomes a treasure to us. Then we're not we're not living as the, the people in the kingdom, and the poor aren't being blessed because the Christians are resourced and holding on to all the, the wealth. Man, imagine if we could be a church, even a Muslim. There's none who had any need among them. Like we're close enough, praying together, walking with one another to know even when we're in need with each other. The stuff that that necessitates pulls you into tight knit community, yeah. And it's so countercultural, bro. Keep your own, keep yourself to yourself. Don't tell anybody what you have in the bank. Don't let your needs be known. Do you know what I mean? It's all about you. Just go and work your, work your hardest and do like, like. But instead, God wants to form us into a community that displays His generosity, that displays what the kingdom looks like, displays what loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. Where your need is my need, and my need is your need, and your possessions are my possessions. Like even saying that out loud sounds crazy, doesn't it? But what do we think the kingdom of God's going to look like? We get to be a part of it. We get to choose whether we're a part of it now. To what extent we get to know the blessing of it. And it's, it's, it's so expansive, guys. It's so huge. Like, work money as a tool for worship. Like, like what if you realise that God provided all things and when you get your paycheck, like, you just, like, it, it results in, like, overflowing and thankfulness to God. Thank you that you provided. Like, it being an aspect. And then, as you get to bless and give it away, it becoming a tool of love. To other people, like being able to utilize that resource, being free from having to hoard it or feeling secure from having it. Of love for one another, the blessing of giving, the freedom for it. And it, just, it just feels huge. And I, I need to repent because I don't often even talk about money and giving it to the church because I'm afraid you'll all think I'm after your money for some reason. And so we're denied that, that aspect where the Bible talks about it more, like, more than faith and prayer. Like, and, 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 and I repent because if we don't talk about it from this space, 
then where are we being equipped? Where are we being, where are we being shaped in the way that we need to understand it? Because you walk outside this space and the world tries to sell you stuff, as soon as you step outside, they look left or right down the road and look for a billboard in a shop. Some people competing for, they're going to buy this stuff and have this identity. Wear these clothes and people will think this well. If you have this car, people will think you're great. You're buying status and buying identity. And Jesus wants to set you free from all of that stuff. And so it's expansive and huge and so genuinely in my heart I need to repent before the Lord of like being afraid of you thinking I'm after you when you were speaking about it. Because it does you a disservice. And so as I was praying this week, I'm starting to pray these prayers as I'm teaching because sometimes I go down rabbit holes and I love just understanding this and the interest in the word. I'm like, Jesus, what do you want to say? Like ultimately, Jesus in this room, what would he want to say to, to each of us? And I began to run through my scripture, filter in my mind. I was like, he wants you to be free from the love of money. He would want you to be free to be generous. He would want to lift up, lift off the, the worries that are on you about finances, about that stuff. And um, and I realised that all of those those pieces that I was thinking were were lines from like the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I want to finish by just reading a chapter where Jesus speaks about this stuff. I'm looking bow your heads, bow your hearts, whatever it is, and just listen for uh, listen for the voice of Jesus and how He would want to challenge you today. And know that it's all in Jim. I can imagine. See when they talk about it, it can sound like you know you're looking like condemning in some way. If you saw the heart of Jesus and wanted to set us free from any bondage, from any like the pressure of not feeling like we have enough to that striving and that struggling. Imagine a life that's set free from that. That's what Jesus is holding out here. Imagine a life that like where God blesses into the life and multiplies out of the poor or lifted out of poverty. Imagine lives that demonstrate the kingdom of God and get to be a part of it now, to choose to be a part of it now, even before the return of the king and the establishment of the kingdom. Like we get to be a preview of it. So I'm just going to read out some things that, that Jesus said about what it means to be blessed. And what about it means what it means to yeah to live in a way that looks different. So here's what he said. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Later on he says, Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you'll lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues, streets and in the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, they've received all the reward they will ever get, but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they will ever get. When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered because they repeat their words again and again. Don't be like them. Your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask Him. Pray like this, our Father in heaven. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today the food we need. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious that the hypocrites do. They try to look miserable and disheveled. So people will admire them for their fast. And I'll tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face. And no one will notice that you're fasting except your father, who knows what you do in private. And your father, who sees everything, will reward you. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them. And where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven. Where moths and rust cannot destroy. And thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is. There the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy. Your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy. Your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness. How deep that darkness is. Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and you'll love the other. You'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And listen to this. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or clothes enough to wear, isn't life more than food and your body about more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you worth far more than them? Aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothes? And look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing yet Solomon. And all his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, He'll certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough today. Jesus, as we abandon, listen to your words. I ask that faith, Lord, you would cause us to live as if they were true, Lord. You would cause us to put weight on whatever the Holy Spirit has put weight on this morning, and our lives will come to reflect and represent you, Lord. I'll speak over our church, Lord, in faith, that there will be no poor among us. That everyone will have everything they need because you will be united us in that way. And I don't just speak it, Lord, in a way of you providing abstract images. I speak it over this community of faith. Like the community we read about in Acts 4. That there will be no poor among us because we're aligned with the, the purposes and the will of God. And we've been free to meet one another's needs and connect close enough to know one another's needs. I speak out of faith over us, Lord. I prophesy, I declare it, Lord God, 
that that would be us, Lord. I ask that that Acts 4 church would come to describe us, Lord. And that we would represent your glory well to the world. And I pray your people, including me, Lord, would have our eyes open to just see the ways of this world and how futile they are. And as we walk around this space, Lord, that, that, and, and, and the world just fires that stuff at us, Lord, in a way that would shape our thinking. I just pray that instead we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and by the work of your Holy Spirit to live in a way that stores up treasures in heaven. I pray that nothing else would make sense to us. That all of a sudden our eyes would be open to just see like the world has nothing to offer, Lord. And you have everything to offer. As we've read out your words, Lord, I just pray that they would do what they do and accomplish in their hearts what you want them to accomplish. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.